Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Welcome back, listeners, to part two of ECTS Live 2023. We spent some time, David and I, running around at the poster exhibition and talking to some of the young researchers at the conference. And here they are now. We're here with our next guest. Okay. Nice to meet you. Could you tell us your name and where you're from? Yes, Zora Bruchemla from Paris, Bioscar Lab. Uh, the directress is Martine Cohen-Solal. You must uh, know uh, her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are you doing a PhD there? Yes, I'm doing a PhD. I'm third year PhD. Wow. And uh, I'm working uh, mostly on osteoarthritis and cartilage. And you're presenting a poster about it yes, in the conference? Yes, I'm presenting a poster and I have a commented poster with a short presentation of three minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my poster is about Lean28A that induces chondrocyte energy metabolism through SDHA inhibition. And why is that important? It's really important because uh, it's, uh, we hope uh, therapeutic, uh, then it will be a therapeutic strategy for osteoarthritis. So the main protein is the N28A and it's really involved in cartilage regeneration. Mm. Ah. So for the patients I see at clinics, because of lots of patients listen to, to the podcast, yeah. people when they think of osteoarthritis, they say to me, my bones are rubbing together. <laughs> But actually, long before that, it's the cartilage that is the problem. Mm. It's the cartilage that wears out and gives way. And you're working on some way to regenerate the cartilage. Is that right? So that sounds exciting. Where do you think this would go then? Is this a tablet someone will take? Is it an injection they'll get? Or is it something a surgeon would do at an operation, putting something into the cartilage? I think that it will be mostly local injection. Or maybe using new uh, uh, technology. Now we have like... Uh, the particles where we can uh, um, target specifically uh, tissue with these uh, nanoparticles that I right. heard from uh, uh, yeah. Congress and everything industry. So uh, I think it would be really uh, interesting to uh, think about that after. Now we are just looking at the mechanism of yeah. the protein, how uh, it uh, can regenerate cartilage, what are the pathways involved. So the so idea we would inject something into a worn yes, piece of cartilage to somehow stimulate that to mm. rebuild? Yes, in the joint. Yeah, because I've always thought we sometimes see patients who maybe one side of their knee is very badly worn, mm-hmm. the other side's not so worn, but it's just the cartilage is worn and the yes. orthopedic surgeon will often say, come back in five years when I need to replace the knee yes Um, so this is really exciting that this is something we can actually prevent the need for knee replacement Mm -hmm. and we are we have some data on Newman because Mm -hmm. we have access to uh, uh, cartilage uh, section cartilage from Newman in the lab because we have the hospital just near Mm -hmm. and we uh, perform some experiment and it's really concluent so I hope that one day I will see my protein as a therapeutic strategy you will see it on someone's knee 
<laughs> I hope <laughs> in not in mine. <laughs> not in yours. Hopefully not in yours. Um, thank you very much for talking to us today, Sarah. You're That's interesting. Thank you. That's been lovely. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Now we have Ophelia from Toulouse. Welcome. Well, uh, thank you. Which uh, institute are you from? I'm from the um, Pharmacological and Structural Biology Institute in Toulouse, so IPBS in Toulouse, France. And you have a you have a talk here at the conference? Yes, I had a talk uh, this morning. It was about the role of moesin in osteoclastogenesis. And uh, what were the findings of your research? I found that uh, moesin, which is a membrane-to-cortex uh, protein that binds the plasma membrane, and also the affectin had a regulatory role or inhibitory role in osteoclastogenesis at two levels, the first one in the fusion of osteoclasts and the second one in the degradation of uh, the bone degradation ability of those osteoclasts. So uh, osteoclasts then are a multinucleated cell and yes. I, I suppose what you've been able to do is understand how, how these cells come together and join to make the osteoclast. Yes, actually they are doing a really nice process that is the formation of uh, membranous protrusion called also tunneling nanotubes. And what I, sh uh, what I show is that uh, by depleting moesin, we increase the formation of tunneling nanotubes. So we think that moesin can regulate this formation and thus the fusion of those multinucleated cells. Now my patients are interested in osteoclasts because I explained to them osteoclasts are the cells that stick to the surface of their bones and tunnel holes in their bones and lead to osteoporosis. And we often say after the menopause these cells work much, much faster and, 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 and you lose bone. So your work is on controlling how the osteoclasts are formed and also on how well they work. Yeah, correct. That is correct. And presumably, then, if you understand which proteins control that process, if we were able to fiddle about with those proteins, yeah. we'd be able to maybe make the osteoclast less active. Yeah, we would. Uh, we would hope so. Uh, so, in order to, for this protein to work, it has to be activated. And the thing is, this protein is expressed by a, a very large amount of cells in our body. And if we um, deplete it or control it, maybe it will have second effect. Mm -hmm. So what we are going to do is to go upstream to see uh, which effectors can modulate this activity. And in those effectors, we want to identify one which is particularly expressed by osteoclasts. So you have to find a step in the pathway then that can lead to an effect on the osteoclasts, yes. but without having unintended consequences elsewhere in the body. Yes. Do you think that's going to be possible, or is the process too complex? Um, actually, we started to identify some of these uh, molecules in the pathway. However, uh, the thing is, uh, each of the three molecules that I identified in the pathway seems to be expressed by another large amount of cells. So for now, we are in the... <laughs> We're still at the stage, I think, with a lot of medicines where we switch something off completely in the body or switch something on completely in the body. It interests me because you're looking in such a detailed way of proteins that control other proteins, that control osteoclasts. There's the possibility here of being much more subtle in what we do if we could eventually develop some drug based on this. We would like to, actually, yeah. I think everybody would like it to. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming Thank to talk you. to us. That was really interesting. Thank you. Thank That's you great. You Thank you.
Sorry. Another guest, we're delighted to speak to Annelies uh, Schmidt from uh, the Netherlands. Yes. Um, you work with Kevin, who we spoke to just earlier. Yes, that's right. And tell us what you do. You work in the, in the laboratory, is that right? Yes, I'm actually the only one of our group that is uh, in the laboratory because the other ones are all uh, clinicians. Um, yeah, so I'm studying the importance of circadian rhythm on bone health. Uh, and actually, I'm uh, specifically focused on uh, what is the communicator of central rhythm to bone health. Um, and yeah, previous uh, research has uh, identified glucocorticoids as an important cue for bone health uh, and also for rhythm. And now I'm actually uh, investigating in how does this actually work and how can we make use uh, of this for uh, yeah, in the mm. clinic. So, circadian rhythm as is the hormones in the body rising and falling over 24 hours, and how that affects what yes. goes on in, in the body. Yes. So, what particular aspects are you looking at then? Yes. So, uh, first, uh, we established that circadian rhythm is actually important for bone health. So, mm. we uh, performed a study in which we disturbed the uh, light-dark rhythm, uh, and then we saw an osteoporotic phenotype, so bone became porous and breaks more easily. Uh, and then we looked at uh, uh, multiple hormones to see what hormone might correlate with uh, circadian rhythm and with bone rhythm. And then we identified glucocorticoid rhythm as an important regulator, which is also supported by other uh, uh, research, of course. Um, and what we uh, do is we uh, flatten the glucocorticoid rhythm in mice. So they do not have a diurnal variation anymore. And then we observe the effect on uh, bone parameters. So on uh, bone structure, strength uh, and other uh, outcomes. This is incredible research. This is really mm -hmm. interesting. So the experiments that you did when you did the light and dark, was that on bone tissue samples or animals? What did you use? Yeah, so it was actually the, um, a PhD student who was uh, working on this project previously. Uh, and what she uh, did was, it was a study in mice. Uh, and she, um, yeah, she, it's, uh, it's called a jet lag model. So you put mice on a continuous jet lag uh, mm -hmm. so they cannot uh, yeah, they cannot keep up with it. Uh, and you then fly them around the world, <laughs> is that right? Yeah. No, you just switch. <laughs> I think maybe every three days or something, you should switch Which their uh, rhythm. Light so and dark, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, um, what you look at is uh, the body composition of mice, just some gen general, uh, um, general factors, so lean mass, fat mass, body weight, and then you go deeper, so you look at uh, the bone tissue structure, the mass, uh, kind, and also the strength. Uh, and then you also go a bit deeper and you try to look at uh, how um, uh, bone genes are regulated and whether the regulation of genes is also affected. So you look at mur multiple mm. levels. Uh, this, this, <laughs> this project is mind-boggling. That's incredible. So you can go all the way from the genes, I guess, the gene expression, yeah. the effect of the changes in circadian rhythms yeah. right through to the strength of the bone at the end. Yes. And uh, and if somebody has a bad circadian rhythm, if you're mm -hmm. messing around with the with the sleep, yeah. does the bone strength go down? Yes, actually you see uh, people who work uh, in shifts, for, for example mm -hmm. nurses, they have an increased uh, osteoporotic risk. So this is really, uh, yeah, it's really clear that uh, uh, mm -hmm. that not a, or 
people that, for example, pilots or... Uh, uh, so we yeah. need to add that to lifestyle factors. So when we talk yes. about food and exercise, we now think about environmental factors as well, you know, pollution in the atmosphere. So sleep deprivation and altered circadian rhythm, we should be adding that to our, our yes. list of things we ask patients about. Yes. That is really interesting. Yes, and uh, sometimes I get a question like, uh, how does it work in blind people? Because they have yeah. no light-dark rhythm, but actually you can sustain your rhythm with other ways. So there are a lot of things that regulate your rhythm, so light-dark cycles, sleep rhythm, exercise patterns, uh, food uh, intake. So you can always uh, try to work around what mm -hmm. patterns work best for you and try to keep your rhythm as good as possible. Uh, yeah. Sounds like conference attendance might be a risk factor for osteoporosis. <laughs> <laughs> it's long days and I think we're all lacking sleep. Yeah. And Elisa, thank you very much. That was wonderful. Really good. Thank you very much. Okay, well done. There's even some round of applause. As well. yeah. <laughs> we're here with Scott Dillon from Cambridge University. Welcome to Bone Up. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, how have you found the ECTS conference this year? Yeah, it's been really great so far. Um, we've had the uh, Bone Research Society conference appended onto the front of ECTS this year. Um, I'm not a usual ECTS goer, so having both conferences together this year has been a great opportunity to sort of meet some people that I wouldn't, I would have never crossed paths with otherwise. And I've already had some great discussions over the last couple of days at ECTS, so it's, so it's been great. Uh, nice to hear another, nor another Northern Ireland accent. Tell us a little about the work you presented earlier in, in the conference and at the BRS. Yeah, so I, I presented a, a, um, an interesting talk at the Rare Bone Disease Workshop this year at the BRS. Again, it was a first for me. I don't usually go to the Rare Bone Disease mm. Workshop because I'm a, I'm a sort of cell biologist turned amateur chemist. Um, but this year we had some exciting work with Ken Poole in, at Abenbrooks mm -hmm. where we're doing some combined sort of clinical investigations of one of his patients and then doing some, some chemistry on, on those samples. So, so it was really interesting to get a more clinical perspective on the sort of work that we're doing at, at the Rare Bone. We've often talked about rare bone diseases and how we can learn things about common bone diseases from looking at rare bone diseases. Is there anything stands out from, from your work in that sense? Yeah, well, that work from Ken has been really interesting because um, the patient that we're mostly focusing on in that work is a rare form of hyperphosphatasia, mm -hmm. where she has compound um, heterozygous mutations in tissue nonspecific alkaline phosphatase, which is the causative, sort of most common causative mechanism in that disease. But what we've really been able to do is actually compare that with other disorders of hypomineralization so in this case specifically osteomalacia yeah. caused by various factors and we've often we've seen some really interesting differences in the sort of chemistry of the mineral um, at the atomic scale using um, nuclear magnetic resonance in this case so so that's been really fascinating to compare sort of similar phenotypes with distinct causes and find actual differences in the biology yeah so much we're hearing about now is quality of bone rather than quantity of bone which is particularly relevant I suppose to osteomalacia and all diseases of hypomineralization of bone. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, we had a brilliant talk from Duncan Bassett at the, at the Bone Research Society who, who's really go get going on this bone quality measurement mm -hmm. and finding these genetic determinants of bone quality, which was also really fascinating. Yeah, I hope that over the next sort of uh, five years we're going to see a, a burgeoning increase in the amount of bone quality research. For a long time, people have been really focused, really obsessed with bone quantity, I guess, because mostly in clinical practice, bone diseases are targeted through DEXA-based BMD. Now we've got all these wonderful new technologies and a whole crop of people who are maybe chemists and other backgrounds coming into bone biology. I think maybe we can start to make some real headway. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, in this case in particular, the whole reason that Ken, um, who's the clinician in this case, came to us was because he found this patient had huge accumulation of sort of unmineralized osteoid on her trabeculae, but simultaneously massively high bone mineral density. So he sort of came to us as, as you know, as mm. basic scientists and chemists and said, how can this possibly be? And can we use some of your physical chemistry techniques to try and work mm. out what's happening at, at down at the nanoscale? I think Kempel's a really good example of a clinician who really thinks outside the box and is very good at engaging scientists from all sorts of disciplines to go and help and support him to improve his patient care. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it helps that we're, we're sort of quite a close-knit um, community in Cambridge because there's not very many sort of bone, <laughs> bone researchers, musculoskeletal researchers in Cambridge, so, so we all know each other quite well. Oh, wonderful. It's one of the things we always try to do here is promote links between science and, and clinician and, and the patient, which it sounds as if you're right, and, and certainly working with Ken, you're right in the middle of that, which is great. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are challenges for us as basic researchers. We generally don't understand the rec, you know, ethics process mm. is completely alien to us. But, but luckily, you know, in collaboration with Ken, we've been able to navigate that really effectively. Great. Wonderful. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. We're lucky now to have Paul Rothwell with us. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Are you enjoying the conference? Yeah, it's been uh, great. It's um, yeah, it's been lovely to uh, present some of my sort of early uh, research here from my part-time PhD, um, but also to be able to go to so many yeah, different uh, lectures on sort of different subjects. I've learned so much, not just on my research, but uh, on, on other things as well. As well. Uh, and it's great to have two conferences uh, running one after the other as well, the BRS and then ECTS, to be able to uh, come to both. Could you tell us about your PhD? What's the work on? Yes, um, I'm currently studying a part-time PhD, uh, and I'm looking at the um, sort of the uh, whether diabetes and arthritis have uh, uh, interlinked really, uh, whether um, that the effect of diabetes on the blood vessels is actually uh, causing arthritis. We know that um, the two coexist uh, and. As people get older, they, they get these uh, diseases as well. But I'm specifically trying to uh, look at if the, the, the blood vessels are damaged, uh, mainly looking at the big blood vessels, so down the back of the knee, uh, the popliteal artery, and seeing if the, there's a smaller lumen in there as the artery gets thicker, uh, if that's having an actual effect on the arthritis in the knee as well. Uh, I'm also trying to take into account uh, the person's BMI as well, because obviously people will say that it's just the weight that is causing the, the arthritis in the knee. So I'm looking at healthy uh, BMI individuals to, to see if it is the, the arteries that's causing that. That's very nicely explained. When I was a lad on learning about diabetes, we were taught that the side effect or the effects on the vasculature were divided into the microvascular and macro, in other words, big vessels and small vessels. I think we always imagined that the effects on bones might be small vessel disease, but you're looking actually at, at the big vessels? Yeah, just really in terms of the, the nutrients that are able to get towards the, the knee itself. Mm -hmm. We know that obviously uh, cartilage is avascular, so we don't actually get yeah. blood vessels uh, heading towards there. But through that diffusion, the blood vessels are getting in towards the, the bone itself uh, into these t tiny little blood vessels. And I'm seeing whether the, uh, the damage to bigger blood vessels is a marker of uh, damage to the, the smaller blood vessels. So hopefully if uh, we're able to see a relationship, which I have done in the, the early stages of my, my research, that we can almost um, intervene before it gets too mm. bad and we can try and encourage uh, patients with diabetes to actually look after their, 
um, things like their diet and, and things like that to, and also take the medication that they're, they're meant to be taking in order to prevent things like arthritis happening later on in life. Yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about the connection between bones and blood vessels over the last couple of series. And yeah, as time goes on, the more and more interconnections we, we see, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. You had a slightly unusual career path compared to some of us here. Tell us a little just about how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so after leaving college, I wasn't too sure uh, what degree I wanted to do or what job I wanted to do. And uh, I luckily got a job at the University of Liverpool as a research technician. I was very fortunate to, to work in Professor Jim Gallagher's lab, as well as uh, lots of other labs uh, within the anatomy department there. Mm -hmm. Learned a broad range of techniques, which uh, is helping me in my future, uh, well, what's going to be my future career. Uh, and then through some changes in the department, I well, also studied a, a part-time degree uh, whilst mm -hmm. I was doing that um, in biomedical sciences. And then through some changes in the department, I then uh, transferred job into uh, sort of our human anatomy resource center. Uh, where I was a teaching technician, fell in love with teaching and wanted to do that as my career really. Uh, so now I lecture to uh, anatomy students, whether they're sort of medical students coming to learn anatomy, allied health, dentists, mm -hmm. uh, or just pure anatomy students. Um, and now study a part-time PhD alongside that. Yeah, it's inspiring to hear that you've done those both, both your degrees as part-time and yet here you are successfully presenting at a conference there'll be a lot of people will be you know excited and inspired to hear that that's that's a, that's a career option yeah i think it's uh, really important to for me personally to really love what i'm doing as a job and um, so that's why i didn't sort of jump into a specific subject mm -hmm. at the start and really yeah sort of almost learned to, to love my job and i think because i'm doing something i feel passionate about i think the research output as well will be uh, much better as well because uh, I'm really invested into into what I'm actually doing. I really love it and uh, yeah, quite addicted to uh, the research that I'm doing at the moment. That's really, really good to hear that. That's wonderful and very well explained. I concur with David. Thank you for your time. Okay, thank you very much. Cheers. Great to talk to Bye. you. Hi, welcome to ECTS. Could you tell us uh, your name and where you're from? Uh, my name is Nikola Stokovic, uh, I'm from uh, Croatia. I'm currently working at the University of Zagreb uh, School of Medicine in the Laboratory for Mineralized Tissues and the Department of Anatomy. Oh, wonderful. And you're presenting a poster at the conference. What's it about? Uh, yes, I'm presenting a poster on the new uh, bone regeneration device, which is called OsteoGrowC. It is composed of uh, bone morphogenetic protein 6, which is delivered within autologous blood coagulum as a BMP carrier with synthetic bioceramics as a uh, compressive resistant matrix. And in this uh, study, we tested this novel bone regeneration device in posterolateral spinal fusion model in sheep. Wow. And big question, I suppose, did it work? Yes, it worked. So it, uh, it, w it achieved uh, spinal fusion um, uh, approximately seven weeks after implantation. And in this specific uh, study, we evaluated the long-term outcome after 40 weeks. So it is almost uh, one year and uh, the spinal fusion was sustained and therefore uh, this uh, osteogenic, uh, osteoinductive device is a promising uh, solution for uh, posterolateral spinal fusion but also other clinical indications. That was going to be my question because I'm a clinician and I see patients in the clinic every day and they're maybe going to be listening to this and wondering what does this mean for me. This is a device which helps build bone. 
thinking of someone who's not a scientist listening to this. So lots of the drugs I give people stop bone loss. This builds new bone. Yes, it builds a new bone and it can be used uh, for uh, achieving uh, bone on uh, sites like uh, spinal fusion, so between the transverse processes or between the vertebral bodies, but also it can be used for rebridgement of uh, segmental defects and uh, indications. Like and for, again, for my patients listening to this, this will be an operation, they will have something placed into the bone that will sort of grow and expand and strengthen it, or an injection, or how do you see it working out clinically? Uh, it should be placed during the surgical procedure okay. and uh, this is Ostergrove C. This is one of the uh, uh, specific uh, uh, form of, of Ostergrove because Ostergrove is a device uh, containing BMP6 within uh, autologous blood coagulum and it is already in clinical trials in uh, different uh, indications like uh, postelateral spinal fusion uh, and uh, the trial with the high tibial osteotomy and distal radio fracture has already been done. And you see this primarily as a treatment for spinal problems then? Or is it just you happen to be looking in the spinal area in your, in your models? Uh, this is one, uh, one possible indication, but in my opinion, the best uh, indication for osteoglossy are uh, spinal fusions, so different. It can be anterior lumbar interbody fusion, postelateral spinal fusion, and also regeneration of long bone segmental defects. Wow, a lot of uses. That's very, very exciting. We look forward eventually to seeing this in the clinic. That's my take on all these things. So that's great. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you very Thank much. You. We're here with Guido and Filippo from Italy. Welcome. How are you both doing? Nice to meet you. Well, good. It's uh, our first time here at it's uh, a good experience. ECTS. Uh, nice experience, yeah. I'm sorry the weather isn't better for you. <laughs> we, we know the... We expect like this, yeah. You, you expect that, <laughs> yes. that's good, that's good. You've been doing some research in an area that is of particular interest to us. We've mentioned it before in the podcast and that's bone quality, yeah. particularly with respect to diabetes. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little what you're going to present on later today? Yeah, uh, we have uh, uh, certified the risk of fracture in diabetics patients, uh, not only uh, evaluating uh, uh, bone parts, so uh, with items such as uh, DEXA and FRAX questionnaire, and uh, previous fracture or incident fracture, mm -hmm. but we evaluate even the diabetic status of the patients. So the presence of complication of the disease, the presence of a long, uh, long duration of the disease uh, or a bad uh, glycemic control. Uh, over the use of certain uh, drugs uh, that can alterate the uh, bone homeostasis. And uh, following this algorithm, we found that uh, uh, not only uh, BMD uh, could uh, be useful in these patients, but mm -hmm. also these other uh, items could be useful, uh, more useful of mm -hmm. BMD, um, because as we know, uh, BMD could not be uh, so uh, reliable in diabetic patients because uh, usually they have uh, higher values than um, postmenopausal uh, osteoporosis, for example. And so you're trying to finesse this a little, because at the moment, if we're calculating a FRAC score, we can sort of tick a box for yeah, diabetes. Yeah. But you're looking at how long the diabetes has been there for, how good the glycemic control. Yeah. You're trying to look inside yeah, the diabetic box. Is yeah, that right? we, tr we try to look uh, um, in the all the uh, items of the patients. Mm -hmm. uh, we are clinicians, so we try to look uh, the uh, patient has um, together of many things. And uh, especially for diabetics who has uh, 
some uh, complication could affect uh, uh, kidney, uh, eye, uh, heart and vessels. How affect uh, the vessels of these organs can affect both uh, the vessels of the bone, for example. And so the big question is if you have worse, let's say, eye disease or kidney disease because of your diabetes, does that put you at higher fracture risk? Is that a marker? Um, in FRAX in uh, risk, uh, in FRAX questionnaire, uh, we evaluate uh, diabetes uh, um, comparing it at uh, rheumatoid arthritis uh, mm -hmm. or with the TBS correction. In fracture risk, uh, we see that uh, depends uh, uh, in this case, uh, we have found more incident fracture in patients with uh, more than one complications of the diabetic disease okay. and maybe with a long duration of disease not only for the uh, complication like uh, retinopathy that could be uh, a problem for the visual of the patient mm -hmm. and the falls, especially for the neuropathy for the falls, but uh, uh, even because uh, uh, the alteration of the vessels of these organs can be even the vessels of the bones. And we know that the alteration of the vessel could increase the cortical porosity of the bone, for example. And is blood vessel disease and diabetes particularly linked with fracture risk, do you think? Could be linked. Could be linked uh, in the way that uh, could alter, uh, could uh, damage the bone homeostasis. Mm. This is fascinating research. It's amazing that the risk factors that you can see, the other effects of the diabetes, yeah. are also risk factors for osteoporosis and falls as well. Yeah, yeah. It'd be fascinating to follow up with you in the future and see yeah, how far you get. Now the 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 study that I present this afternoon uh, is a retrospectively study. So we have a population and we see what happens uh, in this population uh, on the base of this uh, risk factor and. Uh, in the percentile of incident fracture that they present uh, in the observation time. The, now we are trying to look uh, even in perspective, so we are trying to have uh, the assessment in uh, our outpatients that come to our clinic uh, and see what happens. Do you think we could see a day when we would recommend to someone if they control their diabetes better, they would have less risk of fracturing? Mm, yeah, yeah, however, uh, it could be useful to uh, inform even the diabetic patients that uh, how he goes to cardiologist uh, uh, once uh, in mm. a year and to uh, oculist uh, once in a year. Yep. Maybe he has to be he has to do an assessment of the bone uh, health once on uh, once two years. Yeah, yeah. Could we should be, be looking at bone health as well yeah, as yeah. retina and kidneys and all yeah. the other things. Especially, we, um, we see that maybe some heart patients uh, that come to us. Uh, if postmenopausal women, they already have a BMD with DEXA, but for uh, postmenopausal, not for diabetics. Especially for the men who doesn't have uh, this uh, link with the postmenopausal, could be uh, an item more that uh, they could be, even because uh, we see that uh, mortality of uh, post-fracture in diabetic patients could be more high yeah. in, uh, than in uh, non-diabetic ones. Yeah. Mm. It's a really exciting, holistic approach to osteoporosis care. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's because uh, we are clinician in internal medicine, so we have a uh, holistic approach to yeah. the, the the subject to the patients. We don't see the single things, but we try to look uh, the holistic way. That's really useful. Yeah. Thank you very much for speaking to us. That's Thank been you very exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Listeners, we have a very, very special guest, scholar, gentleman, Professor Jim Gallagher. <laughs> Thanks very much, Richard. I, I don't know how I can follow that. I'm, I'm very good. I'm on a high because the meeting's gone really well. Mm -hmm. Well, both meetings, the ECTS 
and the BRS. It was a little bit tense, especially on Thursday when the wind was blowing and hmm. various people were telling me they couldn't come, but I think it's all gone really well. And, and uh, tell us, what, what was your role in these in the, in the conference? Uh, so I'm the local organiser mm -hmm. uh, of the ECTS and, and of course, of, of the B, of BRS. And the conference w has been planned since 2016. Various mm. things got in the way. <laughs> so that was. Uh, the most planning, I guess, took place when I was BRS president and Anna Tati was president of ECTS. But it had been discussed before then. And then, um, of course, we both stepped down, but this was the date that was set. And so, so you've been doing bone research for a long time? Yeah. And you've been involved with ECTS and BRS for a long time. Yeah, yeah. How have things changed, do you think? Yeah. So my first ECT, ECTS meeting was in 1981 in Nocker in Belgium. And I think my first BRS was in 82 in London. It was Bone and Tooth Society then. It, it was, I remember it that. Was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, a meeting that Alan Boyd organized in, uh, in 82, yeah. Um, how things changed? Well, both societies then were quite small. Be uh, BATS, Bone and Tooth Society, was, used to be a one-day meeting. We had two a year. There was very little, if any, corporate sponsorship. ECTS had some corporate sponsorship, but not much. And then over the years, both societies got bigger and bigger, went, became um, more attendees, uh, more um, sponsorship, uh, and went, you know, uh, Bone and Tooth Society became Bone Research Society, and then we started having two-day meetings and then two-and-a-half-day meetings. Um, and how has the research changed in that time? Uh, well, that's interesting. I, d I did. I was honoured to do the Dent lecture the other day for BRS, which is the the, mm -hmm. um, uh, the the award they give every year. And so I took it as a sort of career uh, award and went back to when I was doing my. PhD, and uh, so it remi reminded me, in those days we made our posters with Letraset. I don't know if you've even heard of that, Richard, have you? No, look it up. <laughs> for the benefit <laughs> of the listeners, Richie looks really confused. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, um, uh, we, we would type our own manuscripts. I typed my own thesis. I used to look after my own uh, rats. I used to make the diets for them. Mm -hmm. uh, everything was, was very different. Years later when we started doing PCR, I went to B and Q and got the pers the perspex and made the made uh, made cut the made you know wow. made the tank myself yeah, yeah. Um, and of course there was no web then so mm -hmm. uh, we used to get current contents and uh, when we went to a meeting so current contents was a uh, thing that came out every week with the front cover of every uh, biomed journal and you see um, you go through that and then you heard the names of these famous scientists and I remember going to so, uh, go to my first meetings and these chaps would come along. I mean, obviously I'd, I'd worked for Herbie Fleisch in Switzerland and I came back to work with Graham Russell in Sheffield, but all sort of the giants of the field, Larry Reutz, John Termine, these people. And it was such a buzz, they'd come and look at your posters. And I think that's one of the things that's, that we don't do very well now. I think young people make nice posters and, and I don't think enough of the, uh, they get enough attention from the, um, um, yeah. The seniors. I mean, the other thing that's we've sorry. managed we've managed to quatch quite a few senior people down at the posters good. and interview good. them. Yeah, yeah. You, you can see them going around. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I, I, I think we really should. We, sh we really need to focus on that. And I'm, I'm as guilty of 
as everybody because there's always some you know meetings these days there's always something mm -hmm. to do so you don't always get yeah I think that. posters are a really important part of the meeting yeah. I think it's yeah. something we really lost over COVID when we were told you know you can flick through the posters online but yeah. there's nothing like actually walking around and standing yeah, and talking yeah. to people yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. seeing things yeah I think that's yeah. probably one of the most important parts of the meeting and we didn't realize that until we lost them over COVID yeah and it's it, you can have a big impact on a young person's mm. uh, career uh, I think so I think uh, the other, I mean lots of things have changed Richard uh, I think it's a lot more difficult to get funding now I, I mean I don't want to be you know depress you but I think I, I've lived through the halcyon days of research it was much easier to get established in those days it's still possible now and you have to um, you have to make good connections you have to come to meetings and you have to be uh, uh, you have to have tenacity because if you you know if you turn down for a grant or a mm -hmm. or your publication is rejected you just got to bounce back what, what would you say to a young person young researcher young clinician maybe to make them interested in in bone and osteoporosis you know when there's so many fields and there's maybe you mentioned grants it's maybe easier to get grants if you're researching heart disease or cancer yeah. why, why bone that's a very difficult question, David. I mean, I, uh, I, I did my honours project when I was a, 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 a PhD, uh, sorry, a BSE student on mm -hmm. bone. I did my MSc project and I did my PhD on bone, mm -hmm. and I've been in bone all the time. And, and it's always, it's, it's been, you know, uh, I, I've loved every minute of it. Actually, I love coming to meetings, but I also love being in the lab and I lo love looking through the data. And I can think of a few occasions over my career where. I was. I mentioned this the other day in the dent lecture, when we found that um, human bone cells were making osteocalcin. We were by the gamma counter watching the results come off, mm. and I can, it's still etched in my memory. So, yeah. you know, it, uh, it's the buzz really for me. And I hope. I mean, if 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 people haven't got that, then they're probably in the wrong career. Yeah. But I mean, I think research, uh, basic and clinical, is is um, is is such a wonderful uh, thing. And I mean last few years of my career I worked on this rare disease um, alcaptonuria and that was a great story because mm. we actually found a, th a therapy for that yeah um, I think the challenges I mean there are different challenges for clinical uh, young clinical researchers um, and I um, but I hope we can solve all those and that we can keep good people and, and, and BRS our mission is to bring together clinical and yeah. Uh, basic research and it, it was still still working it works well I think the great thing about the BRS and the ECTS is that there's lots of new investigators who get presentations a lot I mean if you do re bone research in the UK almost everyone has their first talk at the BRS it's where yeah. you it's where you meet the community yeah. you get over the uh, the first presentation you have to do get over your nerves become one of the people and start making friends yeah. it's really wonderful and, and we also get people to chair sessions as well and that's you know that's mm. quite daunting, but I think people it's a great way of like, building your confidence and getting known to people as well. Actually, you know, you were saying you thought the halcyon days maybe of, of research is over. I must I must say I'm quite optimistic about mm. certainly clinically in osteoporosis that we're just at the start of an upslope. Wh well, when I'm when I you know when I look at other yeah, specialties, yeah. yeah. 20 years ago when I started in osteoporosis, it was very analog. You were either taking a bisphosphonate or you weren't taking a bisphosphonate, and that was it. And if you were really clever, you switched between alendronate and resedronate. Yeah. Whereas now we can choose anabolics, dual action treatments, uh, anti-resorptives. We're thinking about really um, 
trying to make it personalised. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really, when I look at where other specialties are, I'm quite excited about the future. No, of you're bone. absolutely right, David. Uh, I think I meant really the housing days in terms of the ease at which you could do things. But but, yeah. but now, I mean, the tech, the technology is great now, isn't it? I mean, the omics uh, revolution. Yeah. So you're right. There's there's a lot. Of, there's going to be a lot of exciting things happening. Personalised medicine and uh, we're identifying drug targets, and so there's going to be lots and lots of things happening. So it, it's exciting in, in that uh, in that way, but m maybe a little bit more difficult. I mean, the other thing is now you have to work in teams. You have to work yeah. together. Whereas I think you know, um, again, when I went going back to my PhD, I remember one of the senior scientists in in the lab who was made some major discoveries in vitamin D metabolism, he, he worked completely on his own, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Even, even washed, wash uh, <laughs> washed, he did his own washing <laughs> up in the lab. But, you know, now with, uh, you need bioinformatics people, you need yeah. so many people in the team now. That's why I see Richie surrounds himself with all these people who come from engineering, computer science, yeah. you know, uh, mm -hmm. and, and builds a team from that. Yeah, well, the imaging techniques are just amazing now as well, you know. Yeah, I don't. <coughs> uh, my PhDs and postdocs, none, none of them come from Bone. Mm -hmm. They're chemists, they're engineers, particularly yeah. mechanical engineers. And Bone is quite good. As soon as you start talking about diseases and the impact that research can have, people from other fields really get on board. It's quite inspiring, I think. Yeah. We need to really use that as much as we possibly can. There's still so much to be discovered as well in Bone. That's the other thing makes, you know, again, I think in other areas, we're maybe a wee bit further on. I think in Bowen we're a few years behind some other areas. Oh and yeah, I mean, yeah. you still come to meetings like this and you hear about whole new pathways that are just yeah, being yeah. described and you think, this is very exciting. It's like my analogy the other day, we were talking, Richie, and I said, you know, you don't expect to sail around the South Atlantic and find undiscovered islands. But I think in Bowen research, there still are undiscovered yeah. islands out there when, you, when well, you're sailing. Well, I think the extraordinary thing is, I mean, I think in terms of molecular understanding, that's absolutely true. But even in terms of anatomy, because through studying uh, alcaptonuria, this, mm -hmm. th this disease which causes this terrible osteoarthropathy, we worked with Alan Boyd and we've actually identified some new uh, microanatomical structures in bone mm -hmm. that we didn't know existed before. We found them in this rare disease and then we actually realized they're present in mm -hmm. aging bone and they're present in you know, osteoarthritis. So they're not, they're not disease specific. So even at the anatomical level, you know, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, We've been studying the human skeleton yeah, yeah. for 3,000 years and yeah. you're finding yeah. new things. Well, I yeah. mean, people have said in the... I'm sure you've had these sort of comments. Oh, why are you interested in anatomy? Leonardo, yeah. uh, you know... Yeah. Uh, it's, it's all uh, been done. Uh, Gale, yeah, Galen course, was there. But yeah. it's not, you know. And I mean, some of the... Even today, some of the imaging things, uh, sessions I've been to... Well, not, not specific imaging, but s people doing s cell work and doing imaging then. It's just amazing. I mean, to see the... Uh, I, I, you know... I love the zebrafish stuff. I've never worked. If I was starting again, I'd definitely like to do some, uh, you know. I, I had the same feeling <laughs> as well, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the thing that strikes me is that uh, a lot of these, a lot of this really good science, a lot of these new discoveries, the pathways, et cetera, they're being presented by PhD students and postdocs at the conferences. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is clearly a very talented crop of people yeah, yeah. who are very highly skilled and well supervised, yeah. I, I bet too. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, despite the the more difficult career pathways, now we've still got lots of really, really super young young people in, in, in the field. Yeah, and they will find a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for talking to Thanks us. Thanks very much, and I hope this uh, I hope this series does inspire people. And I hope I've not been too negative by saying <laughs> the housing days are past. I mean, <laughs> you know, 
every every era brings different challenges and yeah. different opportunities. So yeah. absolutely, the conference has been a huge success, and congratulations oh, to you much. and David, all the rest who worked on. Well, it. lots of people worked hard on it. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. David, we've had a really wonderful second half of ECTS Live 2023. What were your takeaways from the second half of the conference? Yeah, it's been great, Richie. I, I'm exhausted. I know colleagues at work sometimes think you go to conferences for a rest. Well, you and I can testify that if you're running a podcast at a conference, it's certainly not a rest. <laughs> um, the things that I, I've brought away from the second half, uh, more things about quality of bone, which we're always interested in. Um, things that I will go away and think about. We had that really interesting chat with, with Annalisa Schmidt about circadian rhythm and how sleep patterns affect bone. There's a lot of interest out there now about how sleep affects the cardiovascular system and the immune system. Guess what? It may actually affect bone health as well. So that's one I'll keep an eye out for um, in future. There were some interesting clinical stuff and some interesting clinical talks. Uh, clinicians will be interested to hear there was a presentation about tapering the dose of denosumab uh, and how, how patients respond to that, which, you know, definitely watch this space on that. Some interesting stuff about giving IV bisphosphonate according to bone turnover markers rather than simply giving it every 12 months or every 18 months. And another interesting thing just about how, how you treat people who have fractured but who have normal bone mineral density, um, particularly people who have typical fractures like a hip fracture, but you arrange a DEXA scan and the bone density is normal. Now, you and I probably know there's a problem with the quality there, but just how you explain to patients that your bone density is normal, but I want to give you treatment to, to increase the density of the bone, or indeed, is it worth giving that treatment? And that's, again, a very a clinical sort of hot topic. And it's really interesting to hear these things discussed, to get views from, from, from all around the world. And I'm sure, I'm sure you'd agree with me. You know, you come to a conference like this, you make notes, and then you go away and, and you have a, a think about the things that you've heard. And sometimes it takes days and weeks for these things to sink in, which is a useful reason, I suppose, as much as anything for having this podcast, where we can listen back to the things and, and remind ourselves uh, about it. So, um, I, your take, sir, Richie, I mean, I re you really enjoyed that interview with Jim Gallagher at the end, but, but what else stood out for you? I think overall, what stood out for me is the great diversity of people and research projects in Bone right now. It seems like a really wide and interesting field, and that gives me great hope for the future. And it was really interesting to speak to Jim Gallagher. He was the head of department at Liverpool University when I did my PhD. He's kind of a giant in the field. He's done lots of really interesting work. He was really supportive to me when I was young and I know many other people as well. It was great to hear from him his perspectives on how things have changed in research for the better or for the worse. And I think that was quite a nice round off to our podcast. Yeah, it was uh, it was good. It's been a really good few days. It's been really fun, hasn't it? Listeners, I hope I hope it comes across when you when you hear the interviews just how much fun we were having and I think the guests were having a lot of fun with us as well. And overall, it really made me feel like we're we're doing a good thing with the podcast, you know, if the people we're talking to are enjoying it and we're enjoying it, I think that's really important. Absolutely. We had to edit out all the funniest bits, but you know, you've got them on a reel somewhere. <laughs> we'll do an outtakes one day 
So folks, hopefully we'll see you again soon with a more conventional episode with, uh, with, with a guest. And uh, until then, um, continue to, to look after your bones. Bye-bye. Bye now.